A US delegation has arrived in Mexico in a bid to stem the numbers of unaccompanied migrant children who've arrived at the US border in record numbers during the past week. We'll ask how NFTs, or non-fungible tokens, came seemingly from nowhere to disrupt the international art market. And the UK announces a major national cultural festival for 2022 as a boost for Britain post-Brexit and in the aftermath of the pandemic. Monocle's editors are here to discuss those stories today here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the Late Edition here on Monocle 24. It is Wednesday the 24th of March and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto and joining us today from Midori House in London are Monocle's news editor Chris Chermack and Monocle's culture editor Chiara Rimella. Chiara, Chris, great to have you with us on the programme. Today we are halfway through another week, Chiara, so how are things shaping up for you there in London? Well, I'm glad to say that we saw the pages of uh, the second issue of Confect Off on Monday. And I'm really pleased to say um, that Sophie Grove did an amazing job and the pages look truly fantastic. So we're really looking forward to getting boxes of that in the office. And then as with regards to um, my current, my update of my current viewing schedule, I know that, you know, you're always on your toes waiting for my recommendations from what I've watched at the weekend. But I'm pleased to say that I did watch quite an interesting documentary called Made You Look, which is all about, I guess, the absurdities of the art market and uh, in this case, a, a massive case of fraud and uh, and fakes and, and fake paintings. So I'm looking forward to discussing a little bit more about, you know, the, the many kind of uncomprehensible bits of the art market <laughs> later on today on the show. And we will have plenty of time to unpick through all of those on today's programme, as you say, Kiara. And Chris, how about you? How's the week treating you in London there so far? Well, on the personal front, I have to say I'm sort of more waiting with bated breath for next week to start. It doesn't feel like that much of a change here in London um, when you just say that people will be allowed to meet outdoors uh, once, once again. But the one way that it's a significant change, at least for me personally, is that includes sports. And so that's, of course, a key for me. You will find me on the tennis courts from Monday onwards. And I'll have more to report on that, I'm sure, on the late edition next Wednesday. Well, busy days as always. Chris Chermack and Chiara Romella, thanks very much again for being with us on the programme today. Well, we begin today in the United States, where President Joe Biden is facing increasing pressure at the US's southern border with Mexico. A US government delegation has travelled to Mexico City today to try to find a way to stem the number of migrants currently arriving at the US border. A record number of unaccompanied minors have arrived at the border in the past week or so. And on today's edition of The Globalist, we spoke to Doris Meissner. She's a former commissioner of the US Immigration and and Naturalization Service, and now a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute. She explained why the number of people seeking asylum in the US via Mexico appears to have spiked in the past week. The Biden administration has made an effort and talked a good deal about more humane policies. That was a very reasonable thing to do, especially against the backdrop of the prior administration, the Trump administration, which dealt with these issues in extremely different ways, basically shut down the border. And the Biden administration has not 
opened up the border, but it has been more responsive and receptive in allowing unaccompanied young people to come into the country. And I think that what we're seeing is that escalated much more quickly than the administration was prepared for. Doris Meissner, a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute there, speaking to us on today's edition of The Globalist. Chris, to begin with you, how big of a challenge is this for Joe Biden in these opening weeks and months of his presidency? Well, it was interesting because Doris Meissner, in that interview, she she partly also spoke about how there have been moments like this in in so many different administrations. Like, this has been a divisive issue for so long in the U.S. And there are these sort of ebbs and flows, these spikes uh, at, at different points based on messaging from one administration or another, or, of course, certain crises, things, things that are happening, um, whether it's in Mexico or in Central America. And so part of the challenge for Joe Biden in a concrete way is just managing this flow and sort of being able to plan for contingencies and moments where there is this kind of inevitable spike of of people coming to the borders. And in this case, even more unique, as she mentioned, because of uh, its its sort of record numbers of unaccompanied minors in particular. Um, And that goes, I think, though, also to a different type of challenge, uh, which is a bit more unique, you could say, for Joe Biden. Um, And that's because the message has shifted so dramatically in a way that, you know, we we just haven't experienced, I think, before in the U.S. because Donald Trump's message was was so clear in terms of basically saying, do not come to the border, we will not let you in, that even if you have what might still be termed, you know, a relatively subtle, not subtle shift, but but not a whole shift. It's still, as as was mentioned there too, Joe Biden is not saying the border is open, everybody is welcome. There are still limits. There is still essentially the border is closed. She mentioned in the interview as well that about 70% of people are still turned away right away at the border. So not that much has changed. But even when you say something as as simple and, and you know, acceptable, as, as should be said, that we will be treating immigrants, uh, migrants humanely, that already changes the message and creates this, this sort of spike that we're seeing. And so I think one of the keys uh, going forward, and this is also part of the challenge, is they need to work on the longer-term policy implications, creating other pathways, legal pathways that sort of discourage people from coming straight to the border in order to try and get in. But this, of course, is something that takes, you know, a long time. It's something that's been debated over and over again uh, in the United States. You know, when I when I was there and doing reporting, but also talking to people in general, there was always this sort of common but frustrating refrain, frankly, where you talk to people and they'll say, well, we're happy with people coming here legally. We just, you know, it seems like everybody is coming here illegally. And that's that's what we're, you know, that's what we're against. So there's just, there's so many elements of this that are going to take a lot of time to solve for the Biden administration. And in the meantime, in the interim, it just does have to be careful with this messaging. And perhaps there's no easy way to do it. But, you know, you, you, you do want to discourage people from just showing up at the border, uh, and especially, which is what is so sad to watch right now, is to have unaccompanied minors simply coming to the border. That that doesn't feel like something that's that's particularly productive. It's understandable that, that 
families are are doing this um, because they feel there is no other option at the moment. But that's, I guess, my point. You then have to give the people another option so that this doesn't happen. And Chiara, to shift the focus away from the US and to Europe, Italy has in many ways been in the centre of the immigration debate in Europe over the past few years by this stage. Has the tone of the conversation in Italy shifted in that time, would you say, in one way or another? Well, it's interesting because a lot of the conversation surrounding immigration in Italy is very much linked to whatever rhetoric Matteo Salvini um, was um, you know, proposing during his time as Interior's Minister, um, which was until not that long ago when you think about it. Um, and that his draconian new measures against immigration became so intrinsically linked with him and with his approach that they became known as the Salvini decree. Um, I think that the situation, the underlying situation continues. And if you look on, I guess, portals of information that focus on the migrants issue in the Mediterranean, you'll find that there continue to be shipwrecks, there continue to be uh, you know, rescue vessels, uh, finding people in the Mediterranean and bringing them to Italian ports. This keeps happening, is happening right now. Um, it's just that the, I guess, the inflammatory rhetoric on Italian papers right now perhaps has slightly died down because Salvini doesn't have the mouthpiece that he used to have. And also because coronavirus is dominating so predominantly the news that that does, just doesn't have as much space. But in this case, the EU wants to act like a block in certain situations and then doesn't want to act like a block in, in, another, in others. And so it's precisely this issue of reconciliation that I think is at the heart of everything here. Well, you can hear more on our special series of reports on borders around the world on The Globalist all this week here on Monocle 24. Well, next here on the late edition, let's turn our attention to the international art market where NFTs or non-fungible tokens are grabbing the headlines and huge sales figures too. NFTs enable digital artworks or designs to be bought, sold and collected using blockchain technology. Recently, a collage by the American artist Beeple became the most expensive digital image ever, fetching more than $69 million at auction. And now Toronto-based artist Krista Kim has sold the first NFT-backed digital home for more than half a million dollars. Well, to explain what precisely NFTs are, we spoke to Anna Brady, the art market editor at the Art Newspaper in London, on today's edition of The Globalist. To try and find a simple explanation is kind of difficult, but essentially these are sort of intangible assets. You buy a token, which is essentially some code, and that represents or is linked to an artwork that lives on the internet. It's a digital artwork. It could relate to a physical artwork as well. And it's something you can then trade on blockchain. So you buy a digital work of art. You could print it out at home and display it on your wall. That's an option. But you couldn't then trade that sort of physical artwork. You would trade pretty much the proof of ownership you own, which is the line of code. Anna Brady there, the art market editor at the Art Newspaper, speaking to us a little earlier today. Chiara, um, Anna Brady did a valiant job there, I thought, in explaining what NFTs are. What's your reaction to the extraordinary sums we're seeing right now for works of art sold in this way as a line of code, effectively? Well, I think it's a very interesting development in the art market. And I think the the fact that 
new expressions of our our exploration of what an art piece is are are just always bound to be both interesting and expensive at the same time because often those two things go hand in hand when something is unique and challenging then it tends to grab attention and therefore tends to grab market value um i wrote a column a bit earlier on this week for the monocle minute and in it we talked about how obviously so much of the art world has had to adapt to the digital world and it's interesting how this recent shift towards nfts kind of brings it a level forward and goes beyond the awkwardness on having to adapt to the digital world. My worry about it, which is what I wrote in a, in a minute, is does this kind of reflection, it's quite cynical really when you think about it, reflection of what it means to own something and the intangibleness of it, is that something that's going to breed love for an artwork is that something that's going to breed kind of long-lasting passion about possessing something having something or just the thing itself um, and is that going to last a long time and what kind of i guess interaction and relationship is that really teaching us to have with artworks and Chris, let's put that question to you. I'm not sure if you've got a spare $69 million knocking around to invest in your own NFT, but what's your take on this? And as Kiara sort of posed there, how do you think it forces the question about the value, not just monetary, of course, but the value more broadly of a work of, of contemporary art? Well, Thomas, I wish I had a spare $69 million uh, to, to spend on anything, frankly. But um, I, I will say on this, uh, when I first started uh, hearing about NFTs and sort of and reading about it, uh, I have to say on a, on a personal level, I sort of, you sort of expected that the concept of an NFT was that you would have some sort of exclusive access to an artwork as if like, you know, the collage that you mentioned would be handed to you in a digital file that nobody else could open except you on your own computer. That's that's of course not what it is. And so on a on a personal level at least, I have a hard time with that as as something um you, you know, as a concept in terms of the value of an art, because I would want to buy something that exists for me personally in order to enjoy it. Um, the only other thing I'd add is, uh, you know, we were talking about this earlier uh, with Chiara as well and just how the art market tends to have been quite opaque. This old adage that if you're at an art fair and if you have to ask how much something costs, um, you probably can't afford it. And it struck me that this uh, is kind of turning that on its head in an interesting way to shifting to this sort of abstract concept of value, almost like if you have to ask what it's worth to you personally, well, then you probably shouldn't be, you know, in this market in the first place. So it's just, it changes what value means also on a personal level. And I think some people do, you know, probably get a certain amount of enjoyment and value out of owning an artwork, even if it isn't something that they can necessarily put on their wall uh, well, you know, I'll end with, you know, Kiara mentioned in her, in her column as well that it's, you know, you, you, some people, you might feel a little like the, the grandfather who's playing around with, with touchscreens and is wondering what the point of it all is. I do feel a little bit like that on a personal level, um, but at the same time, I can understand that maybe for certain people, they will actually see some value in this. 
Well, finally here on today's programme, plans for a national celebration in the UK to be held next year have been unveiled. The government says it'll be an opportunity to bring people together after the pandemic. But there are, of course, naysayers who think it's a belated attempt to honour leaving the European Union and have dubbed it the Festival of Brexit. Well, Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, had more for us on the planned festival on today's edition of The Briefing. Well, let's be clear, the people chosen are not a bunch of you know, Tory apologists or people who are kind of determined to see Brexit at any cost. You have people like Assemble, who, you know, they're Turner Prize winning group of, it's an architecture collective, and they're involved. And I think that what they do will be fun and exciting. So there's interesting people who've, who've signed up for a chunk of this 120 million. In Glasgow, you have Approximate Arts who are going to encourage you to take part in one of the biggest grow-your-own food projects, which is interesting because I wonder if that's a hint at Brexit, though you might have problems getting, <laughs> yeah. getting all your food picked by, by people from Romania and Bulgaria this year, so you may need to be growing your own. So, as Lance says, there's some opportunities to lampoon it, but I think that there's some interesting people involved. And the country's going to need one or two moments of lifting its eyes to the horizon again and, and being a little bit celebratory. So there could be some positive elements in it as long as it doesn't get saddled with this kind of Brexit title. Andrew Tuck, Monocle's editor-in-chief there, speaking to us a little earlier today. Kiara, this isn't the, the first time the British government has, has put forward festival plans like this after a period of, of national upheaval, is it? The Festival of Britain, of course, staged in the years after the Second World War, is still regarded as, as something of a landmark moment in the UK and its rebuilding after the war. I'm guessing that despite the, the Brexit tag that's somewhat to put on this festival planned for next year, that it is something like the Festival of Britain that the current government is trying to tap into as it looks ahead to the years after the pandemic. You make an interesting point there by mentioning current government. And I think what's important here is to realise that the reason why this has been dubbed the Festival of Brexit from its inception, even though that's not obviously its official title, it's because this was Theresa May's idea. And so when you kind of go back a few years, then at the time, the idea of nationalism and kind of, I guess, blowing your own trumpet was not linked to this idea of kind of bringing the country together after a really tough time. It was probably more aimed at echoing a sense of nationalism that was different to what it might mean right now. You know, if this same idea for a festival had been born right now, um, just aimed, I guess, giving a bit of a boost to the cultural sector after what has been a horrendous year for the cultural sector, then I think a lot of people will have a very different perception of it. And it wouldn't be considering £120 million of waste because they would be thinking of it as like an opportunity for the cultural sector, which it still is, because obviously, as Andrew mentioned in the clip, there are plenty of really worthy people who will be taking part in this festival. Obviously, what's interesting is that the chilling effect of knowing where and when this festival was introduced might actually put some people off wanting to be involved in the in the festival when it could be really an occasion to showcase the best of British creativity in in a sense that is not necessarily nationalistic but it's just full of pride for the creativity that Britain does have. And as Andrew said, Kiara, you know, having any reason whatsoever to lift your eyes up to the horizon and, and celebrate for a moment is, is surely no bad thing. But it reminded me a little bit of the celebrations a few years ago here in Canada to mark the country's 
150th birthday and it sort of turned out to sort of be more of a conversation than a than a celebration I think the context for that was um, Canada's centenary celebrations in the 1960s which a little like the festival of Britain I think it's fair to say is still regarded here as a bit of a landmark celebration for lots of reasons the architecture that was born from it the graphic design of the festival itself uh, the 150 celebrations however they were eventually taken over by conversations about Canada's uh, indigenous history and, and populations which given that the anniversary was effectively a colonial date in the diary questions were asked about why Canada's indigenous communities should celebrate a taller date that marked the removal of their lands from them effectively and, and it strikes me as an interesting case study for a for a festival like this i guess how differently national celebrations can play out in in a relatively short amount of time and chris to, to bring you in here i wonder what you think the value of staging something like this in the changing notions of, of patriotism as, as chiara touched on there might be perhaps even looking at somewhere like the us whether you think a big festival a national festival like this this might might work there. Well, Thomas, you know, I have this strange uh, personal relationship uh, with with patriotism, if you want, because I myself moved around so lot when I was young and am of dual, you know, Austrian and American nationality. But I always actually sought, in a way, because of that background, to find national pastimes and and celebrations, to find ways to sort of identify with the places that I am from, even if I lived uh, somewhere else, whether that was, you know, skiing uh, in, in Austria, which is, which is very much filled with a sort of national pride. Um, or, for that matter, you know, to your point, in the U.S., I, you know, the displays of patriotism around, for example, uh, you know, standing for the national anthem at sports events. And this was something that I used to always get into conversations uh, with friends about, particularly European friends growing up who couldn't really understand it because I think this was something that in the past, in the U.S. at least, um, wasn't necessarily particularly political. There, It was far more common, I think, in the U.S. than in Europe to have this sort of united uh, patriotism, show of patriotism, particularly at things like, like sports games that I found quite... Uh, enjoyable in a way, or just it was partly a, it was a fact of life, and it was also something that was that was quite nice at the time. Having said that, of course, this this conversation also in the U.S. really has shifted over the last few years, and it has become uh, far more polarized. Kind of the way that you're also describing uh, with with Canada, there, you know, it, on the one hand, of course, understandably through the the Black Lives Matter movement. There's been this question about sort of what displays of patriotism mean, particularly for minorities that don't feel necessarily that same sense of pride of country um, um, that that others might. And then, unfortunately, of course, on the flip side, you had someone like Donald Trump who really leaned into that debate, if you will, and made it a political one rather than trying to sort of understand different versions of national pride and and sort of open up a conversation about what we mean when it comes to pride of country or not and what we need to do to have more people feel a pride of country. Of course, instead, he made it this very much left-right sort of debate about, you know, if you don't stand for the flag, well, then you don't love your country. Um, and I think that, for me, in many ways, was just 
very unfortunate because it has changed the nature of patriotism in the U.S. to a very much sort of, you know, us against them kind of mentality. If you if you show pride for the flag, you are on the right, as it were. And if you and if you and if you're on the left, you shouldn't necessarily show pride for the flag. And I think that in a way is sad because, you know, it's just not something that existed before in the United States. It's very understandable where it comes from. But I do hope that we can maybe get back to a bit of a conversation over the next few years in a less polarized way to talk about what it means to be an American and and how to show that in constructive and positive ways. Well, we are expecting, Chris, I think, still the the debut of America's answer to the Eurovision Song Contest, the Great American Song Contest, I think it's called at some point this year. So that might be something to bring down the barriers. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Look forward to that. I'll see you there, Chris. Chris Chermak and Chiara Romella, thank you very much to the two of you for being with us on the programme today. That is all we have time for for today's edition of The Late Editions. Today's studio manager in London was Sam Impey. A big thanks to her, as always, too. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But in the meantime, do be sure to take a listen to the brand new episode of The Entrepreneurs, which premiered here a short while ago on Monocle 24. I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow.